We're starting. <laughs> yeah. So I, well, I, who knows what's going to happen? I hit the record button right away when you're around. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. Exactly. And I know that you know that, which is why I'm not surprised that you just did that. John J. Thompson, we've talked several times about the wonderfully eclectic cast of characters who found each other in the radical fringes of the Christian music underground back in the 80s and early 90s, often at or around the vaunted Cornerstone Festival. My life has been so enriched by this extended community, from the normal to the outsiders, because I always felt like an outsider myself, and this clan made me feel right at home, like I belonged, and they still do. Today, we'll visit with one of the oddest members of that tribe to talk about his journey, yes, but also about another artist who made his name by mainstreaming outsider, nonconformist, oddball status. Join us as Alan Aguirre of Scattered Few and Spyglass Blue and I discuss the legacy of David Bowie. A bit later in the show, we'll crank up the True Tunes jukebox to check out several of Alan's own musical alter egos, with a special emphasis on the 1990 classic, Sin Disease. long been fascinated by David Bowie's artistic instincts, his ability to gather sounds and images from the edges of society, and his insight into the human condition. And I won't lie, I got pretty emotional at the end of Brett Morgan's Moon Age Daydream film. The mind-blowing pastiche of interview clips, performance footage, art house elements, animation, and carefully organized mythic storytelling. So. I decided to call the one friend I knew who is even more of a Bowie fan and student than I am, Alan Aguirre, to see what might happen. I've nothing much to offer. There's nothing much to take. I'm an absolute beginner. Absolutely sane As long as we're together The rest can go to hell 
We'll be absolute beginners right after we take care of a little bit of housekeeping. Hey, this is Ray, and I'm a Patreon supporter of the True Tunes podcast. If you want to join me and the other supporters of this show, you can start with a monthly donation of $5, $10, or $20, which helps to cover the cost of producing and hosting the show. As a thanks for our support, we get early access to episodes and high-quality, lossless wave files of each episode that we can download. We also have occasional Zoom meetups, some special live streams, discounts on TrueTune swag, and more. You can join me by visiting patreon.com slash truetunes or finding the link on the show notes page. If an ongoing patronage thing is not the right fit for you, but you'd like to give us a tip to help with the cost associated with the show, you can find links for that on the show notes page. Thanks, and now back to the music. If you're not familiar with Alan Aguirre, well, I'm looking forward to introducing you. He's someone I can disagree with about something political or even theological, sometimes fiercely, and yet we've remained friends for decades. I ran an interview with Alan under his old pseudonym Rommel Domkus in the old print mag days of True Tunes that got us both in a bit of hot water. He's someone I always looked forward to spending time with at Cornerstone or later at smaller events in Nashville or elsewhere because I knew a wild ride of a conversation was in store. I also knew that, as crazy and out there as he could sometimes seem, Alan is a devoted family man, a compassionate observer of people, a deep thinker, and someone willing to take risks to find answers. So, join me now in the True Tunes interview suite as Alan Aguirre and I grapple with a spiritual appreciation of an artist we both loved, David Bowie. Wake up your sleepy head, put on some clothes, shake up your bed. Put another log on the fire for me, I made some breakfast and coffee. Look out my window, what do I see? A crack in the sky and a hand reaching down to me. All the nightmares came today, and it looks as though they're here to stay. Yeah, there's no the warning street. here, man. <laughs> Let me move no warm-up necessary. What was that? I said no warm-up necessary. Oh, yeah, yeah, not at all. So, it's really interesting. So, in, in 2019, I was gone, like, once a month. Um, like, man, like, May through October. Um, traveling, you know, speaking, conferences, television, churches, you know, home, home things, you know. Uh, because of the book stuff, right? So I'm out there speaking, teaching on the books and stuff. So 2019 was a really good year for, you know, for getting out there. And so I've, I determined that 
you know, instead of doing a flyout, which gets you to maybe one city, right? I'm gonna mm. I'm gonna do some uh, overland overlanding, right? So I have like this exped uh, explore uh, Ford expedition, and so I'm gearing it all up to literally hit the road like three weeks a month and just like deadhead and then hang out for two or three weeks in an, in a region and and cover more ground, right? And and cover more more towns and uh, you know stuff like that. Right, and so I'm all prepped to do this 2019. I'm like, man, I'm, I'm gonna hit the road. It's gonna be awesome, and then, um, and then what happens happens, right? Right. Here's what's really interesting. The Lord told me what I was calling the uh, tele-evangelist portion of my ministry. He was telling me to ramp that part up, that piece up. You know, so I was getting cameras and I was getting lights and I was getting all this gear to ramp up the tele-evangelist portion of my ministry. And I didn't know why, because I was going to be on the road. And so I've been doing a thing on Tuesday morning for the last four and a half years called a Chameleon Church Show. Every Tuesday morning we're doing this thing. And it's almost like a time capsule and it's highly prophetic because it's very organic. No, it's not scripted. I have no idea what we're going to talk about and God shows up like powerful. People are healed. People are, I mean, this is just crazy because all online, all online. Yeah. So all of a sudden, right, whether I wanted to stay home or not, or whether I felt safe or whatever to travel, nobody else was letting anybody in. And so when the Lord told me, remember the Lord in 2019 told me to ramp up my live streaming capabilities, cameras, lights, and all that. All that to say, I live stream five times a week. I have a Monday night thing and we meet every Monday night, right? So I read the devotional, the weekly devotional, and then we do a Q&A. And when I'm waiting for people, Right. So anyway, I am talking with my old friend, Alan Aguirre, and uh, it is Monday morning and you've obviously had your coffee. <laughs> that's, well, that's great. Well, you know, <laughs> right. so, you know, the last 20 some odd years, I, I work for myself. I work for my I work for myself from home virtually, even if I'm doing freelance stuff, it's usually from my home, whether I'm in the office in front of a computer or the recording studio or whatever, the majority of my life, my schedule has been, you know, get up around eight or nine, by nine or 10, I'm working, I work till six, you know, six to 10, six to 11, it's dinner. When we first started living together back in 1985, she insisted that we do dinner around the table. And I didn't grow up like that. I only experienced that when I lived in Guadalupe with my uncle and aunt but anyway so we've been doing dinner at the table monday through friday since day one so dinner at six with the kids and the fa you know the wife and it's family six to ten six to eleven and then everyone goes to sleep and i go back to work till about two so that's been my life for a very 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 long time well when this COVID thing hit she's now at home and we're like we're going to bed at 8 30 watching tv and hang out it's like it totally for the last two years totally screwed up my my routine and um so just as of late i've been like okay i can't do, i gotta stop doing so i've been getting up like at six in the morning so i've been up for four hours already i've been getting up at six in the morning spending some some you know spending some time to the lord i don't i don't do that whole traditional quiet time thing so i'm awake i've been awake for for four hours yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> cool, that's great it's great to see you and uh, I I wanted to talk to you. It's funny because I had I'd done a little backstage interview with you before we even had the podcast going and I had no idea what it was going to be. I just we happened to be in the same room and I got my recorder yep. out and we just randomly talked. 
and I thought, oh, this should work for whatever it is. But then as the show has evolved, it's like that that particular thing just hasn't felt yet like what we're doing. And right. I thought we could we could probably do this better. And then this David Bowie film came out and I've been wanting to talk about Bowie. Uh, ever since we started the show and I've wanted to talk about Bowie with you and um, so I thought well this is a great excuse <laughs> to, to get Alan back on the horn and then you happened to reach out to me the other day and I thought let's just do this First, for those who don't know, you were part of Scattered Few. Uh, you were one of those early bands that was really, as far as my understanding, my recollection was, you guys were, were kind of more a mainstream sort of punk band with a lot of weird kind of alternative influences, not straight up normal punk. You were punk with reggae and ska mm -hmm. influences. But then you kind of migrated into the, the sort of very far left fringes of that sort of alternative underground scene in the 90s and you guys were sort of like a, a colonist's way on the dark side of the moon of that world but when i first heard you uh with that album sin disease mm -hmm. i remember thinking these guys like bowie too but it doesn't it wasn't obvious it's not like you were doing right. bowie from the the hits but there was an element of that but you definitely didn't sound like anything that had come out of the christian music underground and you really didn't remind me of anything i had heard straight up most music at that point was like oh this sounds like this or this sounds like this you guys right. kind of had a hodgepodge of different things and then with your vocal approach it just was like something totally different so tell me before we get started talking about bowie tell me about your musical background in a nutshell and where scattered few came from and how right. that sound evolved so my uncle got saved when i was like seven and he gave me his entire beatles catalog but by the time I was five, you know, I'm in the car, I'm hearing a lot of radio, a lot of Motown, a lot of English Invasion, right? And so Motown, English Invasion, you know, Donovan, all that, the Kinks, all that in the late 60s. Um, and then, you know, as I, as I got older after, you know, 9, 10, 11, funk, like the real funk. Parliament, Funkadelic, right. and, you know, just Ohio Players, you know. Uh, even the Commodores were doing some stuff, you know, and just that, that whole thing, that late 70s thing, that funk rock thing. And then um, summer of 76, I was barely 12 years old. Um, I was at a swap meet and as I was walking, I know this is going to sound weird, but it actually happened. I wouldn't tell you, I, you know me, I'm not going to tell you something that's not true. I was, it was like a freaking tractor beam, womp, and there's this album and it just tractor beamed me into it. And I was like, and I knew it was weird and odd and something was going on while that was happening, but I just went with it. And uh, it was a black and white photo of a guy, portrait of a guy doing this with his hand and changes one Bowie. And I flipped it around, I had no idea who it was, flipped it around, and then the last three songs were Golden Years, Fame, and Young Americans. I knew those three songs and I liked them. So my uncle had Young Americans when it came out and so I remember hearing it. I thought the guy was black like everybody else did, and but he wasn't, it's this English guy, you know. So 
I bought this record, went home, listened to the three tracks I knew, and decided, well, let's flip it over and see what happens. And the first song was about this Major Tom guy, and I remember yelling, oh my God, Mom, remember that song I loved, my favorite song when I was five about that Major Tom guy? Well, this, this is, it's this guy. Right. So I had this connection from even from like 1969 with this guy without even knowing it some i remember somebody trying to show me ziggy stardust when i was 11 and i didn't get it and then i remember young americans fame and i, and I remember golden years and hearing that on the radio and stuff and now i have this greatest hits album and so i just sat there man i held on tight and i and i went through each song in a row ah, man i was forget about it and so i went to my second i'm the oldest i don't have an older brother people are introduced to this stuff by an older brother i have no one i was doing this all on my own so i got a hold of my because i remember seeing a picture of uh remember lou reed transformers on his wall he's got that poster and he's about six or seven eight years older than i am and i'm 12 at the time and so i went to him i go i discovered david bowie I found Bowie, or should I say, he found me. And, I, and he's like, oh my gosh, are you serious? I'm like, yeah. And I go, and I knew you were the guy to talk to because you have a picture of that guy. And then he's like, then he starts explaining to me how Bowie produced Transformer. I don't know anything. And I go, okay, well, I got this album. It's the greatest hits. What do I do? And he goes, just start. And he started giving me a little list of what to buy. And I think by the second record, I just bought him. I bought him chronologically. That's how the Bowie thing happened. That took me down a certain path for the rest of my life when it came to music. I I've never been long hair. I've never liked hard rock, heavy metal, none of that stuff. So by the time I'm 13, 14, guess what? I look like these guys from England that call themselves punk rock, right? Because why? Because they're all Bowie kids, all the punk rockers. Susie and the Banshees, everybody that came out of England between 1975, 76, 77, 78, 79 were all Bowie kids. They were all about Bowie. Everything from, like I said, Susan the Banshees, the Buzzcocks, right? Who do you think they're trying to sound like? All the way to Bauhaus and on. Because of Bowie's, his fascination with America, with Iggy Pop and the, the Warhol scene, right? Velvet Underground and Lou Reed and all that. That's why Ziggy Stardust sounds so prototype, proto-punk, right? right? So there's a foundation there. If you listen to two or three songs, I mean, there's some stuff from The Man Who Sold the World that could be, right? But then you've got Hang On To Yourself, Suffragist City. This is like pre-punk punk. Right. So those kids are listening to that. So they're already in that mindset. That's why it's so easy for that transition to happen with the punk rockers, because they were copying his hair, his makeup, even some of his fashion sense. They're shaving the eyebrows. So when I saw these punk rockers in a magazine when I was 14, I'm like, because I, I, I didn't fit in. I didn't fit in with, with any of the, to the cliques at school. I was the Bowie freak. And so I'm looking at people in a magazine that look just like me, and I'm like, oh, well, these, they're calling themselves punk rockers and they're all into Bowie. I must be a punk rocker, you know? It seemed to me that Bowie was straddling the the Beatles-y pop 
sensibilities with some of the progressive rock uh, theatrics and that the punk right. world, the, a lot of those kids did not have any musical sensibilities or training or uh, abilities right. at all. And so when you took a kid who doesn't know how to play music and say, okay, I want to be like Bowie. So you strip out music theory, you strip out musical finesse. What you're left with is the fashion and right. a couple of chords and you get anarchy in the UK. You get, right, and, you, and you the aggressive that. DIY thing. Right. That seems to me to yeah. be the, the element of, of that British punk thing. Right. Where like with the Ramones, they're leaning a little bit more into Phil Spector and yeah. that California 60s pop without finesse. Yes. The British kids are leaning into Bowie mm-hmm. and prog rock really without the finesse or the skill. And so they're kind of having to strip it down. And it's not that unlike me at 12 when I start playing music and it's like, well, I, I love everything from, you know, talking heads and new wave stuff to Eagles to, you know, whatever, Kansas. But I can't play all the chords, so I just play the ones I can play, you know, and what I lack in uh, dexterity, I make up for in bravado and I play it faster and louder and I just try to, you know, BS right. my, my way through it. And, I, and right. I'm realizing now as I listen back, I'm like, oh, I, I can hear between Suffragette City and Anarchy in the UK, it's just kind of like untalented kids with a lot of swagger, you know, yeah. trying to, they're like a cover band of that stuff. Right. And then, and then New Wave came out of that too, you know, right. and, and even a little God, bit more I mean, skill. Like then you get the police right. and you're like, now these guys actually know how to play music, you know? Exactly. Like, and then, right. and even the goth stuff. So he's, there's all these genres that actually do originate with this one single guy. You know, and his background, I mean, Lennon was, he was a Beatle fan. He, he, he was into Lennon. Um, he was into Dylan. He was into Little Richard was his first introduction to that. So he was all about that, that jazz and that black soul stuff. He was always into that. Those are his roots, you know. So do you think that understanding this, at least the musical cultural significance of Bowie early on, part of it is understanding him not, not as an originator, but as a interpreter of, of other things, the way the Beatles were interpreting rock and roll, they were interpreting blues and bringing mm-hmm. it to another generation. Is that kind of what Bowie was doing? He was, yeah. he was such a fan and a student who's kind of taking these right. things. And, 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 and he has... And he admitted to that from the very beginning. He called himself a collector. I'm a collector and I'm an actor and I collect all this stuff and then I regurgitate it. But yes, he's, he's, he's very much so that. That's why he's called the chameleon and blah, blah, blah. He did that and he did it really well. I mean, Young Americans, for example, that whole, that whole blue-eyed soul thing that he did, disco thing he did, was literally ripping off the Philadelphia scene. And this is pre-disco. 
And so he, so he just surrounded himself with those people, you know, Carlos Alomar and uh, Luther Vandross. And what he came out with was original. Bowie is always going to take me somewhere, whether I agree with the conclusions he comes up with or not. He's at least trying to take the thing inside out, expose its guts emotionally, spiritually, intellectually, philosophically. He's kind of trying to lay it all out there. Yeah. Um, at least by the... When do you think that that happened? When I go back, I don't know that he starts off that way. Like, he kind of grows into that thoughtfulness. Do you agree? He, like, it seems I, like... I agree. I agree. He stumbled into it. Maybe, like, some point right. he was like, this is getting boring just being the... Right. Well, you know, Aladdin even... Aladdin saying, like, I want to do something a little bit more. I want right. to have some meat on these bones. So, between 64 and 66, 67, he's, like, doing what everybody else is doing, you know, musically. You know, he's trying to be, the, you know, just like the Beatles and the, and the Rolling Stones. It, he's doing what everybody else is doing. You know, he had 11 major label consecutive single failures between 1964 and 1966, 67. <laughs> wow. He was actually like a teenage celebrity. You know, he was yeah. actually, you know, he was a model. He sang, he was in movies, commercials. Then he put on this whole Anthony Newley thing for almost two years. Then he did the hippie thing, then he did the pop culture thing with Space Oddity, and then he reinvents himself and into what we would see a version of for like the next 20 plus 30 years. I think that we can attribute that to the two things one again he's a collector and he was like a crazy reader this guy read everything and anything and so he just stored all this the guy was an intellectual the man of sold the world hunky dory and ziggy stardust all were re written and recorded and released within 18 month period of time that's yeah, insane that is insane yeah. and then when you keep and but then if you keep looking at the dates of when things were recorded and released even then aladdin sane pinups young americans there's only like two and a half years difference between aladdin sane and young americans right. and that's like such a leap Too long hair and your eyes are blue. the only thing i ever got as you started to write your own music and come up with Scattered Few, mm -hmm. uh, how did you uh, allow this fandom, this enthusiasm for what he had done to inform what you were doing with Scattered Few? And as you look back on it, how do you see those fingerprints appearing? Yeah, uh, I think lyrically. 
lyrically and some of the arrangements and I was able to filter it though I was you know the I was like straining it through a filter of Bauhaus because that would be like the new version right right uh, it's like here's a Bowie version for the 80s so for scattered few being able to filter that through a Bauhaus filter and I think it, it you're gonna see it in um, in the lyrics and maybe some of the arrangements like subtly in the arrangements because yeah foundationally we were doing more of a bad brains thing did you ever pick up on um any sort of intentionality did you think bowie was trying at some point to impact or influence the way his audience saw the world and lived their lives i think that probably i'm gonna say based on the material and the interviews and then his career path i think he only really started realizing that by scary monsters and Teenage Wildlife would be a good indication of that. Now you're all the way now to station to station and he bails leaves la goes to germany now you've got low heroes and lodger he's now starting to think a little bit differently in his approach in his delivery in his songwriting and his lyrics and then he does scary monsters where he literally does talk about because see by now you know people are doing the tom tom he's a brand new what same old thing and brand new drag you know, he's, he literally is talking about all those new wave bands that are coming up. I think that comes into play then, because then he, what, what does he do? He starts doing a little bit more film, he does Broadway, and then he sits down and says, I want to make a hit album. Right. And now, and that's what he does in 83. Okay, so now with with uh, Moon Age Daydream, this oh, thing man. just 
just slayed me. Um, yeah. And, and uh, bringing my youngest son Jesse to see it, and and Michelle, uh, Jesse said at the end we you know sat through all the credits, and that little benediction that he gives at the very end was just unbelievable. And then Jesse said, "I don't think I was really prepared for the rush of serotonin that was going to go through my brain <laughs> watching that thing." But one of the things that struck me about the film was uh, his willingness to not only every, everybody talks about his reinvention that's one thing artists often do that just for the sake of marketing like you've got right. to have a fresh product to sell but his willingness to say yeah that thing I said back then I don't I don't think I agree with that anymore I've got a better idea now and mm -hmm. Um, the way his view of his need for other people or lack thereof early on that that he really did need love he needed to open himself up was pretty profound it did feel to me that by the end he was delivering some very profound messages it felt like he was really trying to get those who had ears to hear to really consider the path they were on, the things they were thinking, the way they were feeling and stuff. The middle of the movie, they were talking about love and his need for love or whatever. Um, they then cut into, uh, I think, the, the, the Madison Square Garden footage from his birthday in 97. And he's doing kind of pretty much doing a, a solo rendition of, of Space Oddity. The lyric, I, I, you gotta remember, I've been listening to that song since I was five. Right. So that's like, what, 53 stinking years. <laughs> right. And I had never heard it or seen it like that before. One of the most exciting things I got to do was to sit down with my grandson, who's 12 now, and he's literally a mini-me, and, and go, you know, look, Major Tom Space Oddity. Look, Major Tom Ashes to Ashes. Look, Loving the Alien. Look, Black Star, there's Major Tom. They found his body in the rocks on a planet. And, and, to, and he's like, and, and watching his mind make the connection that this has been a 50-year saga of this one astronaut, right? That was pretty exciting. So I had, a, I had a moment like that myself watching the movie because I'm watching him do this version by himself of Space Oddity, not a new version, but I heard the lyrics differently than I've ever heard before. He's like, he's freaking talking about himself. And yeah. the alienation that he's done to himself, and it was just incredibly sad. Like it was tragically sad. Did he become Major Tom? I mean, obviously he, you know, he does talk about the the, the characters he came up with were, were they were inside of him. You know, that's why they existed. You walk into a room with a mask, you're you're whoever you want them to think you are. This is ground control to Major Tom. You've really made a great. And the pipers want to know whose shirts you wear Now it's time to leave the capsule every day This is Major Tom's ground control I'm stepping through the door And I'm floating in the most peculiar way the stars look very different today Forgive, am I sitting in my ticket 
implication of recognizing that level of alienation, that level of self-harm or isolation or whatever happened to Tom that left him there in the dark and all of that. There's a certain kind of artistic projection that then says, well, for one thing, it's what's happened in the meantime to Tom, you know, but that there's the second thing is, do you want to be that or do you want something else? Because the Lazarus yeah. project, you know, the, to me, it's almost like Tom gets a resurrection. Like there's, there's an opportunity to do it again. And maybe uh. that's what love provides for Bowie is a chance to come back from the dead. Do you think that I'm reading too much into it to think that um, Lazarus and the the final couple of albums are him <laughs> trying to bring that stuff to something I, a little bit more human and a little bit more literal? What I see the Lazarus Project being is, hey, you know what? I think I'm running out of time and I've been wanting to do a Broadway thing since the 70s. So I'm going to do it now. Because I thought that was kind of a half-ass attempt. Really? I thought so. Um, I thought it was a requiem. I thought it was basically. Yeah. A, you know, I think a it's him trying to get his own past. I think it was him trying to get something done that he always wanted to do, just so he could say he did it. Hmm. His birthday, 2013, he releases a single. Nobody knows he's even making a record. He's been working on this record for two years secretly, and nobody knows nothing. Robert Fripp was brought in to potentially play guitar. And I mean, they, these guys were signing NDAs and I mean, all this, cause it was literally un, a secret project and it went on for two years. And then out of nowhere on his birthday, he releases this single, Where Are We Now? But it's the end of the single. It's the end of the video of where, and right. And he's talking about his time in Germany, the, the three or four years he spent in Germany. I post it every once in a while. There's this amazing black and white picture of Bowie Eno and Fripp sitting around the board at hands up by the wall. Can you imagine the brain trust? <laughs> I know. Oh my gosh. You know, I've met Eno once. He's shorter really? than I am. There's people shorter than you? Wow. wow. All right. I'm 6'4". Everybody's short, man. I, gotta come I don't know how tall you are. Yeah. You don't, I'm, I'm serious. Say, wow. I have no idea that you don't strike me as a particularly short person. <laughs> so, so, the fact that Eno is shorter than you is nothing. It surprised to me. me. Okay, so, when we, so when we get to the end of this video, He's wearing a shirt, a t-shirt, and, and he's looking at the camera. I don't know, it's just kind of weird. It's, it's, it doesn't make any sense why you're like now backstage or you know somewhere in the back of the studio uh, and you're wearing this t-shirt and you're looking kind of weird. You just, I don't know, it's, just, it's really goofy until you, unless you know what the t-shirt says and you know the connection to the t-shirt. What's on the t-shirt is the name of the play that his one true love in life left him to go do and pursue in like 1968, 69. Oh, right. Hermione Fothingo, they lived together. They say that that's why he had red hair because she was a redhead. Uh, you can see her in the videos that he did back in 67, 68 with Feathers, the Love You Till Tuesday film. She's the girl in those, film, in those videos. Um, but this is like his one true love. He wrote two songs about her in Space Oddity alone and she belled to go pursue this play. And the title of that play is on this t-shirt. And he's too smart not to do something deliberately. Does that make sense? Oh, sure. yeah, he's yeah, calculatedly yeah. deliberate about what he does. And it's like, holy moly, why is, he, why is he telling us to go all the way back? Why is he taking it back a decade even before that? Because it's all connected. Right, and then 
He does that album, he doesn't tour it, and then he does Black Star. I'm not quite sure what I'm supposed to do. So I'll just write some love to you. We're going to step away from our discussion of the music and legacy of David Bowie for a few minutes. We'll crank up the True Tunes jukebox and listen to a bit of Alan's music right after this. Hey there, I'm Mark Feldbush from Columbus, Ohio. I'm a Patreon backer of the True Tunes podcast. I've also left a rating and review of the show at Apple Podcasts. It really wasn't that hard. It didn't cost me anything. But this show means a heck of a lot to me. And I know that reviews and ratings make a big difference when it comes to how and if others discover these conversations. Would you take a few minutes, maybe even while you're listening, if you're not driving, of course, to leave a rating and a review? Even if you don't listen on Apple Podcasts, the reviews posted there push out the podcast to platforms all around the world. Oh, and take some time to tell your friends about the show. Let's drive the numbers up together. Thanks. Smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. We're the scattered few. Although Scattered Few didn't show up on the national stage until about 1990, Alan Aguirre, under his original pseudonym Ronald Domkus, began playing gospel-tinged punk music with his band in the clubs of L.A. much earlier. Scattered Few was equally influenced by the art-forward edge of the emerging punk scene and the lingering counter-cultural aroma of the Jesus movement. The band would blend elements of early ska, punk, reggae, metal, and yes, the theatrical rock of David Bowie into a truly unique blend. And while Terry Scott Taylor had been helping the band with demos back in the early 80s, it was their 1990 album, produced by Taylor and engineered by Gene Eugene, that really rattled our little cages. The album opened with a 90-second blast that completely captured my attention and imagination. Still weak and corpses, they ride me corpses, still 
kill the sarks, a reference to the Greek word for flesh or sinful nature, is full throttle punk, sure, but so much more. It's alternative, metal, and more than a little bit horror film too. And right when it had its hooks in me, it just ended. Modern ska revival was still a few years off when Scattered Few brought their funky cauldron to bear. There simply was no frame of reference for the combination of sounds that made up Sin Disease. It was wiry and brash, like Jane's Addiction, and fast and chaotic, like Dead Kennedy's. But the bass and drums frequently veered into an almost reggae realm, bringing bands like Bad Brains into the mix. was as brutal as any speed metal band out there, and the band was willing to change up rhythms in the middle of a song without notice. Take you to my recruit, don't reject me cause I'm young. We're here for Yahweh, glory to magnify his son. Hang on, get ready, wherever I'm beginning, preventing a the vision of the trash man is really getting bad Don't preach by the media, somebody get it to make the news we've had The spirit's moving, to bring out the pot and suffer confusion Take a life, you're right, hold on But the truly wild thing, the ingredient that none of us could define or contain, were those manic, rangy, seemingly out of control vocals slithering over the top of the whole thing like a dread-headed snake. Aguirre, 
always in complete control of his voice as a musical weapon, could move from lurking bass notes to untethered vibrato in the most awesomely disturbing ways. Sin Disease was not just good Christian punk, it was one of those LPs that deserved consideration on the wider musical stage. Released by Alarma, a division of Frontline, the record never had a chance to succeed outside of the Christian underground. But at places like Cornerstone, and in the pages of True Tunes, Scattered Few was instantly one of the coolest bands on the scene. Scatterfew's label affiliation days were limited. They were controversial from the beginning, pulled from most Christian bookstores when rumors spread about the band, and eventually dropped by the label. By the time they released their follow-up album, Jawbone of an Ass, they were essentially an indie band working with a rotation of small labels. That album was initially released by Mike Knott's Blonde Vinyl label.
After an extended hiatus, the band returned in 1998 with the Grandmother's Spaceship album. scattered few offering, so far at least, was Omega Number no. 5 in 2002, released on Allen's own mid-90s, Alan started another project, the Britpop new wave post-punk band Spyglass Blue, that brought his Bowie influences even more to the front, while also displaying some goth darkwave tones. And in the 2000s, Aguirre introduced Men as Trees Walking, an experimental alternative worship project that included members of his family and other friends.
We're going to let the jukebox cool off now and head back for the final segment of my conversation with Alan right after this. Hello, my name's Rob, and I'm one of the Patreon backers of the True Tunes podcast. I'm honored to invite you to join me in support of True Tunes by signing up on their email list. I know email is often annoying, but by being on the list, I get notified when new episodes drop and when new articles get posted at truetunes.com. Sometimes, John even sends out short notes and gives away records and swag and stuff. Super cool. But really, the point is that by staying directly connected, I know that they don't have to pay Facebook or anyone else in order for me to hear from them, and that's important. They don't send out too many emails either, and I'm always happy to get them. So really, it would be helpful if you'd join me over here. You can find the sign-up link on the front page at truetunes.com. Oh, and don't forget to add John's email address, jjt at truetunes.com, to your contacts so that the emails don't get caught in your spam filter. And if you have any feedback on the show or questions, you can email him and he'll get back to you. Thanks for listening. All right, you're not too old for a sing-along, are you? (laughs) Yeah, well, let's see. Bowie, to me, felt like he was in the same, swimming in the same kind of waters as Peter Gabriel and U2 and others. He was just, he was looking at it in a, in a different way, but it always felt very spiritual. And I don't know if that's just because I was very spiritually minded and I was seeing it in there or if it was right. just genuinely in there. But I find that the last 10 years of his work, I just don't see how it makes any sense if he's not coming to a place in his life where he's starting to see that it's there's a certain spiritual connectedness to all of this that gives it resonance beyond irony or beyond the beauty of just culture or fashion or whatever so i was asked a couple two or three times after he died if i thought did he do you think he came to the knowledge of messiah before he died i'm like no I, i actually don't even just you and i and we've known each other for 30 years plus, have a difference. There's a variation in our definition of what salvation in Messiah means, I think to an extent, right? Let alone a Bowie. I don't believe that he knew Jesus like you and I know Jesus, or you know, even, even at that level at all. But he was a Tibetan Buddhist for uh, most of the mid to late 60s. And then he became a superstar and kind of 
dabbled, he did, he, we all know he dabbled in the occult, uh, and we know that he got really stupid and involved in the occult when he was in, living in LA in the mid 70s, which is why he went to Germany. Then he chilled out, probably got off, got off a lot of the drugs that he was on as far as maybe usage. Don't know if he was ever 100% clean. I don't know. And then we start seeing some things creep up. Then, then he did, then he did outside, right, in the early 90s, which is again more. Uh, leaning towards cultism but we see little spikes right so we see little spikes like for example word on a wing it's literally a prayer he's literally praying and begging that what he's that he's like at least trying to align himself with this other spiritual thing Everyone says uh, scary monsters and then heathen, right? Heathen is one of the most amazing records he ever did. And there's like a 20 year difference between the two of them. But there's a couple things that I, one I knew about the name and the title and the uh, cover art, but then you mentioned it. There's a song he does called, um, I would be your slave. So he literally is paraphrasing that Christian bookstore thing about footprints in the sand. Oh, you when you only saw one, I didn't leave you, I was carrying you, right? That that thing. Right. Well, right. he literally says in that song that if you would make yourself real to me, I would be your slave. I know he had experimented with Christianity, but what is the number one obstacle? What is the number one gnat these the majority of man strains on? the supremacy or the exclusivity of Jesus Christ of Nazareth as the only door, as the only way, as the only bridge to God the Father or to some supreme higher being consciousness, whatever you people call it, right? People cannot handle the exclusivity of Jesus. And we see that in the gospels. John the Baptist, his own cousin, when he's in jail, sends his disciples to Jesus and asks him, are you the Messiah, flat out? Are you the Messiah or should we wait? be waiting for someone else? I love Jesus' answer to, to John's disciples, his cousin's disciples. He says, tell John, the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, and the poor are receiving the gospel. And blessed is he that is not offended by me. And everybody is offended by Jesus. That's why we have all sorts of denominations out there. <laughs> right? I think I think a lot of people are offended by Christians well, that, <laughs> more than they're offended by Jesus. It has to start Sometimes somewhere, though, right? They, they don't have a chance to even get to Jesus because they got to go through his people yeah. most of the time.
I know for a fact he had a hard time with this with the exclusivity of Jesus, which is why I you know he's he's worded on a wing that there's that prayer and then and then the, the one about I will be your slave. If God, if you would just make yourself known to me, if you would make yourself real and known to me, I would be your slave. There's, that's a cry for help, man. And you caught that. Sure. But then the part that I knew was heathen. The word heathen is upside down on the cover yeah, and his exactly. eyes are all glazed out. And he flat out says on Regis's morning show, Bowie's on there and they're going through album covers and he asked about it. And Regis asked about the cover art and why, why you know, heathen. And, and he goes, well, the word heathen is upside down, but then my eyes, they look like a fish to represent Christianity. Yeah, so yeah. there's this duality. There's this struggle. Heathen upside mm -hmm. down. My eyes are, are the way they look on the cover because it represents fish, which represents Christianity. There's a tug of war going on. And there's that song on that album. Right. And then you go to Black Star, yes. the last record he makes. So the record came out on a Friday, his birthday, and then he was dead Sunday night. I got the pre-release on Thursday night, and I'm listening to I'm doing what I've done since I was 12 years old. New Bowie record, I'm sitting down, like at a table, to eat, and I'm just gonna consume this thing, right? And so while I'm consuming this record, I remember my, my wife was in the room, but she was reading, and so she's, you know, she's, she can hear it, but she's not paying attention. And I remember saying something, why is it so dark? And then, and, be, and then I said, and then when Blackstar came on, I go, why is he being so blasphemous? Because he says, you're a flash in the pan, I'm the great I am. I'm like, why is he being blasphemous towards God like that, you know? And then halfway through the record, I remember pausing it and, and saying, saying to the room, I think he knows he's going to die. And then he dies. And, and then I was, as I was listening to Blackstar again, I realized, oh, I had it reversed. It's not him talking to God. It's God talking to him. Right. I'm going to take the, here's the, the, the stanza. I'm going to take you home. I can't tell you how. You're a flash in the pan. I'm the great I am. Yes. There's that struggle again. Even to the very end of his life, he's still struggling with this. So what could the struggle possibly be? Well, any basic form of Christianity introduces the Jesus character into the equation. And that's where people, that's where we lose the 80%. I cannot submit myself to the reality of a Jesus Christ character being the only door, the only way, the only truth, the only life. And I have to go through him to get to God. Is just too offensive for for a lot of humanity. How many times does an angel fall? How many people lie instead of talking tall? He trod the sacred ground. He cried loud into the crowd. I imagine growing up in England, growing up in Europe, growing up yeah. in a, a post-Christian culture yeah. is very different than growing up in fundamentalist America, you know, yes. especially growing up in a Christian subculture in fundamentalist yeah. America. Like, so 
in England, you're you're learning biblical stories. You're learning stuff uh, in school, but it's taught almost in the same way that you're learning about Zeus and Jupiter. And but it is p- kind of part of your DNA culturally. You're you're Anglican, like that's part of the that's right. part of the deal, right? It's part of the right. culture, and so part of that artistic instinct to take things, break them apart, Rebel. look at them, <laughs> turn them upside down, put yeah. lipstick on it, whatever. It also it <laughs> makes sense that he would he would be analyzing that stuff and critiquing it. That was right. his generation was doing that. But then, you know, he he kneels down and says the Lord's prayer at Freddie Mercury's, you know, uh, at the at that memorial service, there's times where it's like he's kind of saying, "This is still a part of my life. I'm not rejecting it outright." And I know that for sure. for some people in the evangelical fundamentalist realm, something like Buddhism is considered to be completely apart. Where there are other traditions that would say, "Well, you could be a Christian and still use you know Buddhist practices in terms of how you pray." Without, so I'm not one of those guys, by the way. Sure, <laughs> but I'm saying there there could be other ways sure. of understanding like prayer practices right. or spiritual practices that don't require you rejecting right Jesus. But I just find I, I wonder where it does kind of get interesting to me and for this conversation is I think that. The world that you kind of skirted up against, and I say that because you were never really kind of a main CCM Christian rock artist. You, at, Whoa, on what a do you mean? Good day. On a good I'm day, as, you were. I'm not as. I'm not as big as DC Talk. Wait a second. <laughs> no. Don't you, you know not. who I think I am? <laughs> and now, now we've gotten somewhere. If that's who you think we are, the, the source of your frustration has become apparent. <laughs> I think that that's you hilarious. were. You were. You were kind of always. Uh, oh my gosh the fringe and even when we when we talked about you in true tunes back in the print magazine we were like oh there's this really cool alternative underground la punk band that has these spiritual ideas and to us it was like great but the point is you bumped (laughs) up against that world right yeah but you were never like in that main lane right not because I didn't want to be, but apparently when you actually believe the Bible and you believe like in Charismatica and you believe the things that I believe, they're not too happy with that. You're not welcome in the, in yeah, the mall of shops. That you're gonna, yeah, you're going to rattle the car. You're going to actually ask the hard questions. You're going to say, I'm sorry, that's not in there. <laughs> you know? Sure, okay. But it does seem like the, the popular version, the successful version of the Christian subculture in America that emerged was to say create christian versions of popular rock music not to actually engage like there could have you could have probably become very successful if you became the christian david bowie like if you took that style and then made very obviously evangelical lyrics and said instead of let's dance let's praise you probably could have sold some records right one i never tried to be a christian version of and two i couldn't sleep at night if i wrote a song called Jesus, instead of bleaching, <laughs> I just met a guy. Right. You know what? But, okay. All my contemporaries I'm, in the early 80s were already doing that. Right. But so my point is, we're sitting here talking about Bowie's music because it, it, it we value it. It matters to us. And, yeah. and regardless of the theology that he particularly held, we still find value in that work. Remember, they always 
people of faith might consider tweaking the way they listen to music and approach artists like a David Bowie so that they're getting a richer experience out of that than strictly asking the question, do you think that this is Christian or not? Well, I know for a fact there's a huge, huge, huge demographic of Christianity that absolutely can't believe that I still would listen to Bowie or even admit that I would still listen to Bowie or that I like them or that he had any, they can't handle that. You know, apparently I'm not like most people. I want to know how we got here. I want to know what were the steps that were taken to get to, right? I mean, do you know how many people don't understand that our, that the worship music that we've been listening to for the last 20 years or almost 25, 30 years comes directly from Delirious, which comes directly from U2. I mean, People don't they don't they don't care about stuff like which that. comes from the Ramones and David. Well, Bowie. that's what that's what he said. But <laughs> I don't believe U2 was ever a punk rock band. I don't believe they ever looked like a punk rock band, nor do I believe they ever sounded like a punk rock band. And I'm all about everything they put out pre-boy as well as boy and October. You know what I'm saying? And I'm a fan. I'm a pre-boy fan. I loved all that early stuff like a lot. I mean, come on. They were so young and so good. Come on. You don't think it's possible that punk looked and sounded different to a bunch of 15-year-olds in Dublin than it did to a kid in L.A.? Not when it looked like that for, for kids their age at the same exact time. But anyway, what was the question? Well, just that we have a, we've gone far afield, haven't we? So I'm, I'm all about how did we get here? You know what I'm saying? It's like, to me, that's important. And so, you know, if you look, if you look at my line of rock and roll, we're going to go Elvis, Beatle, Elvis, Lennon, Bowie, you know what I'm saying? And that's a whole stream there. There's a whole stream there that goes, new wave, punk, you know, the, the, the 80s retro stuff, even ska. I mean, it's like, it's just, um, I want to know how we got here. You know, I want to know what made Bowie tick. I want to know what made John Lennon tick, you know, which is why I love and respect rockabilly and then go the step back you know the 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 the, the black spirituals and african-american spirituals um i'm that guy i want to know how we got here you know people don't care how we got here you know it's like you know everything that happened in the 90s and 2000s in christian rock guess what i was a part of the the inception of that you know and th that's documented and i'm not saying oh that's to give myself a pat in the back no but to answer your question i think uh, I was in the studio with a band and they were doing a part. I'm like, you know, this is a really good part, but do you know where this comes from? The, what you're trying to pull off musically right here, you, you can, let me play you, let me play you Jane's Addiction doing that exact riff, that exact everything right here. Oh, now let me play you uh, Back in the Saddle again with Errol Smith doing that because that's where Jane's, whether Dave Navarro right. knows it or not, that's where it comes from. Right. So what you're trying to do in 2003, let me show you how it was done in 1988 with this band, and then let me show you how it was done in 1970-whatever with Aerosmith. To me, that's important because if you know, and this applies to faith, I don't believe 
Christianity uh, originated with a bunch of Gentiles in the third and fourth century because <laughs> it didn't you know <laughs> this is a hebrew god with a hebrew messiah not rome not greek to me that's very important to understand what it is that's being trying what, what they're trying to tell us in the new testament if you uh, if you annihilate the old testament you i guarantee you i promise you you will not understand anything that's going on in the new testament it's impossible in the same way, musically, I, I think it'll make you a better artist. It'll make you a smarter artist. You know, my original instrument is drums. You know why I was such a good drummer? Because I had all this stuff in my, inside of me. So whenever somebody would bust out something, I knew the exact drum to apply to it because it's already been done. So the more you have, the more tools you have, I think the more proficient you will be in your craft. It doesn't matter what that is. I think you're talking about the difference between understanding the fundamentals and being a fundamentalist. Like, <laughs> when you understand the fundamentals, you can build on those to become excellent at whatever the thing is you want to do. No, as I a drummer, believe that. you understood the fundamentals. Uh, the Beatles understood the fundamentals. Bob Dylan went and yep. hung out with Woody Guthrie, and he, he understood mm -hmm. the fundamentals. When you're a fundamentalist, you limit everything back to one thing and then you refuse to grow or learn or expand like a fundamentalist might say well then we're only going to and then you you put hard limits on things and you right and we're still talking about music right right and so to me like to take your to take your fundamentals versus fundamentalist idea on the musical side or even yeah. to, to use your hebrew i love that example of if your christianity is only based on uh, the Reformation, say, or something like oh, that, geez. and yeah, you're, you're and skipping the Old are. Testament. Learning to listen, uh, even as a kid, if I said, okay, this thing about, say, a Bowie thing is a stumbling block to me. This is a troubling. This is this is off off putting to me. Maybe it's the gender bending thing. Sure, or it's the it's something yeah. that goes against. It rubs the wrong way. Uh, what is he actually getting at? And then I start to go deeper into that and say, what are the questions he's asking? What is the what is the energy and the culture that he's tapping into? I can actually get to a place where I go, okay, now I can find some resonance. I can I can feel some some commonality with what's going on there. And I feel like if we listen hard enough and generously enough, we can actually get to that point and say, you know what, the thing we're talking about, we actually share that. We, we actually do mm -hmm. have that in common. And then we can earn ourselves the right to, to talk and share and we find people come and leaning into some of those ideas we would love yeah. to talk about. Art and rock and roll and concerts, that seemed to me at one point in my life to be a, an invitation for people to argue and talk and discuss and debate and have spiritual experiences. Right. And then it, instead it became this propaganda machine where it was really more about finding people that already agreed with you about certain propositional things and, and distancing yourself from people that didn't. Bowie seemed to be willing to take risks and to offend his fans and put people off 
But then over time, everybody kind of came, well, I guess he kind of had the point. I guess, well, that was better than I thought it was. Yeah. You know. Well, you know, I live in Utah. The more I know about the Mormon faith, the, the better I will be at having conversations with them regarding faith. Yeah. Same idea, right? Um, the more I know about music, the better musician I will be. And I'm not just, you know, a lot of people would want to pigeonhole me into, oh, yeah, he's only into Bowie and punk rock. You know, that's it. <laughs> they, that's because they don't know me. But if you know me, you know that I've got quite a palette of, of, uh, in my background of, of music. Zip back into the murky past here. This is a song that uh, I originally recorded. It's the first song that I recorded as David Bowie in 1966. So what are you up to these days? Are you doing music still? Are you making records? So we're re-releasing everything. Scattered Few, Spyglass Blue, Vinyl, CD, oh, remastered. Wow. So we've got all that coming out. Um, that'll be nice. A lot of people are going to be able to have, like Jawbone of Vanessa is going to be on, on vinyl. That's never been oh on Oh my gosh. Put yeah. Down for and then, and we're going to, and we're redoing CDs too. So, and it'll, it'll have distribution. It's going, it's coming. It's going to be really exciting. Um, anyway, so I have a, I've been planning on doing new music for a while. This is the longest I've ever gone in my entire life without putting out music. So I'm a writer now. I write. I've been writing books since 2017. I've got like four, three or four books out. Um, and you can get them at acaciagrovepress.com. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm a book writer. I'm writing about theology, doctrine, apologetics. <laughs> Very I, I glam told, rock kind of stuff. An old friend of mine a few years ago said, so what are you up to these? He'll go, well, I'm writing books. And he goes, but of course you are. As if, you know, this was always going to end up. I didn't know. To me, it's fascinating because I'm a big study on human social behavior. I mean, that's, you have to be if you, to do what I do. But I can sit here and tell you X, Y, Z in song form with a band with music as its delivering agent. And people are like, yeah, I say the exact thing in print, X, Y, Z, and they lose their freaking minds and they're coming out, they wanna drag me into the street and crucify me. There is something about, oh, but it's music, so it's art, it's subjective, right? But the lyric, it's the same lyric. I can take the same lyric and put it on paper without music and they're like, crucify him. 
It's amazing. What a phenomenon. And that's what I've been experiencing. But yes, finding new ways to, to offend people, absolutely. So anyway, I've been writing books, Apologetics, Theology, Doctrine. Um, got about three or four of them out. Um, I'm doing live streams, uh, chameleonchurch.com forward slash live for that schedule. And new music. So when I write, I've been listening to a lot of instrumental worship, you know, um, Bethel's come out with some good stuff. There's a bunch of stuff that's come out, right? So I've been listening to this instrumental, uh, what's his name, uh, Gabriel Wilson, produced like the first one that they did. Excellent work. But anyway, I've been listening to this stuff and the more that, that's come out now, there, you know, there's other, other groups or other people are coming out with them, uh, these instrumental worship albums. I started hearing a common thread and I'm like, what's going on here? And then I realized, like about a year ago, I realized, wait a second. I've been listening to this stuff since I was 13 years old. It's low. It's the instrumental stuff from Low and Heroes. People are literally copying, ripping stuff off from those two albums and putting it into this worship stuff. And I'm like, no wonder I'm grab. My wife calls it casino music. She hates it. No wonder I'm gravitating to this <laughs> instrumental worship stuff because I've been listening to it since I was a child, a teenage young boy, 13 years old because of Low and Heroes. So I got this brand, I upgraded my recording studio. And so in order for me to, to learn this new gear and tech and all that, the best thing I'm gonna do, I'm gonna put out an instrumental worship album and then I'm gonna do a Spyglass Blue this is God willing, and then a ministry's walking thing. But yeah, that's okay. I'm very excited about that. Awesome. Well, you know what Bowie said: a talent borrows and genius steals, right? All day long. <laughs> well, hey, say hi to your family for me. It is. Good. I will. Likewise. It's been too long. Um, we'll, we'll love to see everybody in person again. But thanks for taking time with us today. This has been great, and we look forward to my pleasure catching up Appreciate again. Appreciate Thanks, Alan. That was everything I had hoped it would be. You can find all of the Scattered Few, Spyglass Blue, and Menace Trees walking music in the Faceless Gen Recording Company store at Bandcamp. Go to fgrecco.bandcamp.com. Of course, you can find that link on the show notes page as well. And if you ever have a chance to check episode 10 of the first season of the ABC TV show Wife Swap, from back in 2004, you definitely should. The Aguirre family was featured as one side of the swap with a very strict religious family as the other half, and the payoff was, well, fantastic.
As I pull out my soapbox to wrap this episode up, I want to consider my original idea of weirdos and oddballs, the castoffs that Bowie mainstreamed and that Cornerstone made such a home for with people like me and Alan. Obviously, there's a lot to consider in Bowie's music when it comes to alienation, reconciliation, meaning, and redemption. We've traveled the road quite a bit here today, and I feel we've barely scratched the surface. I love that about Bowie's music and great music in general. It rewards deep consideration. When you dive into it, there is something waiting for you there. I appreciate Alan Aguirre's confidence, and I'm humbled by our mutual respect. I may have a slightly different take on some aspects of life and faith, but I think we are generally rowing in the same direction. It seems to me that this stumbling point he mentions, that point of exclusivity, is worth some reflection. Maybe that is the problem many people have with the gospel. They just can't handle the idea that there's only one way. Then again, others suggest that when Jesus was on the cross, praying for God to forgive us because we knew not what we were doing, maybe that prayer gets answered. Maybe, somehow, his love finds us when we aren't looking for it. Maybe, somehow, we are the most likely to encounter that love when we are as far away from what this world calls normal as we can possibly be. I'd still rather be counted among the outcasts and the rabble, the punks looking to Jesus for healing, answers, or food, than among the good religious folks with the power and the politics and the traditions on their side. I'm not as confident as Alan that Bowie didn't know Jesus at some level. I just can't get around 1 John 4, where the disciple reminds us that love is of God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. It seems to me that the more Bowie, and really this applies to anyone, studies love, the closer they get to God. I hear it shot through his music. On the other end of the spectrum, I hear profoundly religious people sounding farther and farther from God as they get farther and farther from love. Early in his career, before he was recording mostly original material, Bowie demoed a song written by a highly regarded singer-songwriter, Leslie Duncan. Love is the opening door Love is what we came here for No one can offer you more I had a similar feeling last summer when I got to sit in with Savior Machine's Eric Clayton as his electric guitarist at the Audio Feed Festival. We covered Bowie's Loving the Alien, one of my favorite of his songs and certainly a highlight performance for me. Sitting up there long after midnight, surrounded by friends singing that lament of a prayer about loving outsiders and believing the strangest things with Eric's mournful baritone pleading for mercy from somewhere, well, it was exhaustingly holy. I'm over trying to categorize things like this, and I'm certainly not going to make claims about Bowie's beliefs. I will say that his work has deepened my faith, 
and enjoying it in the company of my broken, outcast friends has enriched my life in indescribable ways. And if this even approximates what it means to walk in the way of love, then consider me an absolute beginner indeed. Okay, I'm climbing off my soapbox now. do it for this episode of the true tunes podcast thank you to alan aguire for the excellent conversation and for 30 plus years of friendship and great music you can find a list of all of the music from this episode and links to all of alan's music and books on the show notes page for this episode at truetunes.com slash bowie and patreon backers you'll be getting a special video file of my conversation with alan so enjoy that if you would like to support this show, head over to patreon.com slash truetunes, or if you'd like to give us a one-time gift, you can find the PayPal link on the show notes page. And thank you for doing all the other stuff, leaving us the ratings and reviews at Apple Podcasts, subscribing to the weekly Spotify mixtape, and signing up for the email list. This podcast was written and produced by me, JJT, with co-production, editing, and sound design by Bruce A. Brown for Gyroscope Productions. Our theme song is a special instrumental mix of Full Circle by Phil Keggy and Rex Paul. The contents of this program are protected by U.S. copyright law and are the intellectual property of Gyroscope Productions, with the exception of songs or clips that are from previously copywritten materials. Everything on this episode is used by permission or under fair use provisions. Gyroscope Productions can be reached at JJT at TrueTunes.com or P.O. Box 60401, Nashville, Tennessee, 37206. Until next time, this is JJT reminding you to stay tuned and stay true. Peace. aware of a deeper existence, maybe a temporary reassurance that indeed there is no beginning, no end. And all at once the outward appearance of meaning is transcended and you find yourself struggling to comprehend a deep and formidable mystery. I am dying. You are dying. Second by second, all is transient. Does it matter? Do I bother? Yes, I do. Life is fantastic. It never ends. It only changes. Flesh to stone to flesh. And round and round. Best keep walking.